Welcome to year two of the Funding Love podcast. I'm Mallory Elrod. And I'm Caitlin Duckworth. We are two adoptive moms that seek to love, support, and elevate all corners of the adoption triad, including adoptive families, adoptees, and birth parents. We do that through honest conversation with both expert and everyday voices about all things adoption and more, all while running our nonprofit, Funding Love. We create post-adoption experiences that strengthen bonds, build community, and restore people. We are Funding Love, the podcast. Hey, it's Caitlin here. Welcome to episode 61. We have a really cool guest on this episode today. Her name is Savannah Lyon. She's actually a Funding Love alumni. Her and her family traveled with us on a Funding Love adoptive family vacation. So we're gonna actually dive in, get to know her a little bit more, but also learn about RAD, RAD, which is Reactive Attachment Disorder. So I'm excited for y'all to learn and get to know her a little bit more. So let's go. Welcome to this episode of the Funny Love Podcast. Hi, Caitlin. How are you today? Hey, Mallory. I'm great. I'm really excited. Uh, we have a special, special guest today um, who is a Funding Love alumni um, in many ways. So let's let's just jump right in. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to you, Mal. Yeah, absolutely. So we have Savannah with us today. Savannah is a mom to two kids and a Jesus lover. As a single mom, she adopted her youngest child out of the foster care system. She is also an advocate for adoption. She loves to write. She loves to read the Bible and she's very active in her church and is only slightly obsessed with her dog bear. (laughs) Savannah, we are so glad that you agreed to come on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I love being called a Funding Love alumni. That's awesome. I know. (laughs) Honestly, girl, we just like, I love to look at all of our previous families and birth moms as like a family. I just feel like we're all like tied together in this really Mm -hmm. unique way. And for our listeners, not only is she alumni and a part of our family because she was on our 2019 vacation, but her and her two kiddos actually joined us at this year's gala to share their story on stage as well. So yeah. we just love you and we're so grateful you're a part of this family. So why don't we hop right in and you just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you came to this journey of adoption and foster care and becoming an adoptive parent. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so my parents actually were foster parents when I was a kid and I just thought it was a really cool experience. I really enjoyed it. Um, when I talk to them now, they're like, oh, no, that was it was not nearly as fun as you thought it was. Um, and I'm like, well, I, you know, I remember there were some things, but like there wasn't anything traumatic. And I just thought it was so great. Um, I remember we had a little baby, like brand new baby that stayed at our house for like, I don't know, it might have been a night. But when it had to go to a different home um, because my mom did not want to have a baby. And my, da- my dad said yes while she was out of town. <laughs> so um, <laughs> this is back before cell phones and they could call. And um, so anyway, my, my dad had said yes to this baby. And my mom came home and she was like, no, we're not having a baby with all these toddlers that are in the house. And um, I just remember just bawling because this baby left. And I was so attached after like one day, I was like, I don't know, maybe six or seven years old. Um, and I didn't really think that much about foster care after that, um, after my parents stopped fostering. Um, but I just kind of landed myself in a role in a foster care agency 
um, after college, I um, was working at a school, but I really needed a job for this summer. And I just asked um, somebody in my church, hey, uh, look, can I have a job? Like, I don't care if it's like three hours a week or whatever. Like, I really just need a job this summer. And so he actually hired me on. And then a year later, I went on full time after I left the school. But um, all of that just kind of evolved into this just like, I don't know, just a life change. You know, it's interesting how like that one conversation of I just need a job. I don't care if it's three hours a week like basically changed my entire life and the entire trajectory of my life. And I went to a Christian Alliance for Orphans conference. And while I was there, I really felt like God was putting on my heart to adopt out of foster care. And I had always wanted to adopt. I didn't think about adopting out of foster care. So he put it on my heart. I was working with teenagers who were aging out of foster care. And what I continually saw was that kids who were around seven or eight years old would enter into a family where that family would eventually like give up on them. Or I just kind of saw that as the turning point time and time again. And I just said, so I eventually stopped working with the teenagers and said, I want to make a difference for a child so that they don't go back into the foster care system. I'm going to be there no matter what I'm going to, I want to be that child's family so that they don't end up like these kids that I've been working with. So I decided to get my foster care license. And um, I actually only, truly only fostered one child, like in the normal, like foster care sense of the word. And that was the child I adopted. (laughs) So, wow. Yeah. It's so crazy how the smallest decisions or they seem so small in the moment can have like this life altering impact on not only the course of your life, but the course of other people's lives as well. And I really love how you were like, I kind of want to be the wall for one child, even if it's just one child to be like, it's done for you. Like, I don't want foster care to be like an ongoing life story. Like I want to be able to be the end of that foster care cycle first for a child. I think that is so, I don't know. I think that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, and I love that you looked on your time as a as a child in your home growing up as that being like a fond memory. And your parents like, oh, it was crazy. And you're like, oh, but it was so like it was so life giving to you at even such a young age. I love that you look on at that so fondly. Mm-hmm. I think that's important for people to hear as parents because you know even myself, it's it's really easy to think like I'm ruining my biological child's life by entering into this ministry and this hardship that is foster care um, just because there's so many really difficult things. And so I really kind of thought, you know, I mean, it's, it's good. It's good for me to look back and remember that, but as a child, you have a different perspective. And um, when I worked in the foster care world, I definitely would try to tell parents that like, this was my experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean yes. I, that's that's a great way to start this episode. Yes. Um, so you know we're, we really wanted to have this conversation that we're about to have with you because you are parenting through this this particular thing, and I am not um, educated on this really whatsoever. I know Mal and I have kind of talked about this briefly, but from kind of like the sidelines, I've never really experienced it or know much about it. And it's RAD, so RAD, which is Reactive Attachment Disorder. Um, 
and I know you know you're kind of in the middle of that with with your son. So tell us exactly like what that is, um, how this came to be, like how you knew that this was something that you were dealing with. Um, so like maybe the journey to diagnosis, or maybe this was something you knew beforehand. So kind of speak into that a little bit. So pre-adoption, I was really fighting for answers um, about behaviors and trying to figure out what we needed to do to really help him. Um, and so we went and got a psychological analysis or evaluation. Um, and where we live, they're very difficult to come by because um, there's not mm. a lot of local people here. Um, we're, we live in a fairly rural area. And so we had to travel. We had to go and stay overnight in a hotel. And it was like a day-long thing um, to be able to do this. But um, I just felt like there was something that just wasn't right. And I didn't know what the right answers were. And I didn't know how to help him. And so I just was taking him to like any specialist that I could find that would potentially have a solution for us. Um, so when I got the, when I got the results back, I was so angry. I literally like took the paper and threw it Mm. across the room because I was so mad. Um, because the way I received it was I had to go to my local doctor's physician's office and they just handed me the results of the test, like over the counter at the reception and just were like, okay, here you go. Here are the results mm. of the um, neuro neuropsychoanalysis or evaluation. Well, and they're like, what do you do with that? They just hand it to you over the counter and then see ya. That's exactly what happened. And so I'm like looking through it and then I see this and then the, and then they give you like some ideas of like what you can do to really like support the child. And it's like, oh, well, you need to be consistent as a parent. And all these like really stupid things that are mm-hmm. like, you don't think I'm already trying to do that? And was this like on like a flyer? It was not, no, it wasn't like a report. Okay. Okay. Well, still, it's just very impersonal. It seems to be like a very impersonal sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And just really uncaring. It's like this, I just was like, mm-hmm. this is a huge thing in our life. And like, there's no support for it at all. Mm. It's just, here we go, figure it out, I guess. Wow. And um, so I was very, very angry mm. about it. And, um, but, you know, I mean, one of the good things that happened through it was that as we completed the adoption, um, it allowed us to have like more support resources um, post mm-hmm. foster care. So. You know, we're sometimes they don't allow you to have ongoing Medicaid. Um, sometimes they don't allow you to have ongoing resources um, that are available during foster care. But we're able to k- keep those resources, uh, which was very helpful. It didn't really make it that much easier, though. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So what what were some signs and symptoms that, that led you to say, okay, we need to do this evaluation? Um for those listening who, you know, might have a child who's like, ah, these behaviors are so unknown to me. Where, where do they, where do they start? Yeah. Or like, yeah. Or like, what are the symptoms of Brad? Cause I know I have several friends um, and it's pretty common with kids that have um, had early childhood trauma or have been placed in the foster care system. So like, 
maybe just share with our listeners like what even is a symptom of reactive um attachment disorder. Red. attachment yeah. disorder sorry <laughs> I, said, yeah. I almost said attention I'm like that's not it <laughs> <laughs> no we have that too <laughs> um <laughs> so um it can it can present a lot as aggression but the main thing is he's like repelled from me so I try to provide love and care and hugs and he is like no get away from me but yet he will go to a random stranger and talk to a random stranger. He has absolutely no fear. So I'll give you um, just an example from he's 12 years old now when, when we were in Orlando. So you might not have known this, Valerie, but while we were at the, the gala, he left the resort and he was like in some neighborhood. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I had to leave and go and like try to find him. Um, fortunately, I had gotten him a watch that has GPS. Mm-hmm. And so I could track him and he called me and he was like, I don't know where I am. I'm like, there's alligators. <laughs> 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 so what are you doing? You cannot be like wandering around these lakes, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was just like, just he was just like wander off. And mm-hmm. then. Um, a couple of days later, we went to Universal, and he literally just, like, left the park and went back to the resort by himself. Like, we are from Nebraska. This is Orlando. This is a mm. totally different world. And, like, he just is so fine with just, I'm just going to up and leave and go. And I don't really care. Oh, my gosh. Um, now, that is, like, one of the terrifying symptoms that you will see. Um, you know, like, I remember when he was little, like, six. And he would just go up to the people working at the county fair who, um, to me and to most people, just aren't going to feel safe. Like, those mm-hmm. people aren't going to feel safe to go and talk to. They, you know, they're not, they're, they're strangers, first of all. Um, mm-hmm. they, they don't even have, like, a, an appearance of somebody who's safe. You know, they might be missing teeth. Mm. And so for a six-year-old who's not used to that, you would think that would be terrifying. But he's constantly going to these extreme situations and doesn't have that fear. One of the ways that I try to explain it is my it's my daughter, who's biological, it feels like there's a magnet that she always just kind of comes back to me. Like she's just, mm-hmm. even though she's 16 and we're in a really difficult season right now because she's 16, um, she still comes back. Like there's just a constant pull. But with him, it's like that magnet is reversed and it's almost like I repel him. And the reason why is because like you were saying, he had early childhood trauma. Yeah. And so he is... I am the most dangerous thing that could ever happen. Like, and the reason, the reason Mm. why is because if he is, um, if he is vulnerable to me, I could hurt him again. I'm the person who could hurt him the most. Mm. And so I'm the person that can be trusted the least. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the way it's been like explained to me in the past from friends that parent um, children that have RAD is that 
it's like those early childhood traumas, it like basically wires their brain. It's not even like they have a choice or they're choosing it. It like, it rewires their brain to distrust, trust in a sense. And so it's like, if I feel close to them, like you said, it's like red flags, like their brain, where our brain would feel comfort in that, like, oh, I can trust them. Their brain is wired to do the opposite of like, warning Will Robinson, don't get close. So it's easier to go to a stranger and it like innately makes them want to push away anyone that feels like they're getting close, which is so hard when you're trying to parent and be a family and build those trust relationships and you want to be that safe place for them. And then they don't allow you to do that. Like that is so hard. So Mm -hmm. what does like, I know that there's different, you know, of course there's be consistent and there's all of these, you know, probably non-helpful, like generic ways, but are there any like practical ways or things that we can do to help children, um, with rad or is like, is complete healing even possible? Or is it something that they just kind of have to like learn over time and like learn how to rebuild those trusts and their brain rewire those things. Like, is that even possible? Um, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Um, of course, like with God, all things are possible. Right. And so we can trust in that and believe for that. Um, I think that it's a very, very long road. And I Mm -hmm. think that there's always probably going to be hints of the trauma in their life and in, um, in their decisions that they make and, and it manifests in a lot of different ways. I do think though, that they can come about to have a better relationship with their caregiver, um, over time as they learn to trust. One of the things that I really, really believe in is trust-based relational intervention. And it comes out of um, Karen Purvis's um, Institute in Texas. Mm-hmm. She And she wrote The Connected Child. And then she and Wendy, Wendy Lyons, I think is her name, um, wrote The Connected Parents, which are just really good books. They, they kind of go hand in hand, but they just really talk about how to support those kids in all of the different ways that they need it. And the very... The, the thing is, is you have to parent them very counterintuitive. So it's almost the opposite of how you would parent um, maybe a neurotypical child where you're not focused on behaviors as much as focused on, which I'm going to be honest. I actually think like now that I know about TBRI, I think TBRI is the way everybody should be parented. So I'm not saying that, <laughs> I'm not saying that People with biological kids should not parent their kids this way. This would actually probably be a better way to parent them. Right. Um, And I wish I would have known this when my daughter was younger. But it's focused on meeting their needs and being, like, consistent with I'm going to – I'm going to meet this need for you. And when I say this is the boundary, this is the boundary – and that helps build trust. The problem is that it's really hard because they just keep trying to cross those boundaries and it gets very exhausting. But um, Karen Purvis Institute actually has like camps and stuff that you can do. I have a friend who is a, is a practitioner and so she came in our home 
and worked with us. And that really helped quite a bit um, to help us just to be able to function on like a normal level and for me to be able to really learn those skills. But I honestly went to like a lot of conferences. I read that book a couple of times, listened to every podcast, watched all the videos. It took a long time to get to the point where I was like actually like following it consistently and could understand it well enough to be able to like do it. Still, I mean, it's still difficult though. It's still because, you know, we, our parents weren't taught to parent this way and um, society doesn't necessarily support it. When they see your child acting out, they're like, oh no, you need to have consequence for that behavior. And what they don't understand is that like a consequence, like yelling at the child or giving a, a spanking, for example, um, or having a child go into a room away from you, those things are actually more damaging and don't resolve the conflict. So you're playing the long game mm-hmm. rather than trying to address like short term behaviors. Yeah. No, it's funny that you said TBRI. Um, I think that's the right word. But we had a guest on who talked about mm-hmm. that. And Mal and I were both like, this is, you know, very... This is the best way to yeah, parent. Yeah, this just seems like the good way to parent. Like, you know, more than anything, it's just, okay, this is kind of how I want to be as a mom. So it's, mm-hmm. it really mm-hmm. is, I think even probably more so um, with a child who has experienced trauma, maybe consistency is going to be, you know, being more consistent and way more intentional is probably going to, you're going to see a greater impact. But in, in general, it's just kind of like the good way to be. I'm going to read that book. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's a good way to be a human, you know, like you can <laughs> yeah. Yeah. use yes. TBRI on, um, your coworkers, on your spouse, on mm-hmm. the clerk at the store. Um, yeah everybody it's so true but it really is it can be so exhausting and we had I know you know Julie Lindemann um who serves with us at Funding Love she was on an episode and she talked about she said this line about I don't give people in the cheap seats like a say in what I do so like Mm -hmm. those people at the store that are judging the way I'm parenting my child then they don't know what my child is Mm -hmm. is is walking through in life and how difficult this scenario in the grocery store that any other child would handle in an, in what we would say, quote unquote, normal way, they just cannot process it that way. Um, like they're just going to have to judge and move on. And I can't, I can't let that get to me because I'm not going to give the people in the cheap seats, you know, a say in how I parent. And so I think that's so true, but it's so exhausting. It really is. And to then know too, that like those typical ways, um, that you parent that worked for one child or worked for three of my children doesn't work for one of my children. And it's like, like you say, it has to be completely counterintuitive because some of the things that would be helpful for another child, like you need to go have a time out in your room could actually be harmful for him because he would use that as an opportunity to like be destructive or even hurt himself. And so it's like, it's, it's so hard even as a parent to get your brain to switch around how to parent differently. And it's just exhausting. It is exhausting. And so if you're a parent out there and you're feeling exhausted, like we see you, (laughs) we're in community with you. Mm -hmm. And so Savannah, talk about ways we can support parents that are parenting through this. Well, I mean, I'll be honest. I feel like 
it's extremely isolating to be a I'll just call I'll just call myself a rad mom you know I'm a rad mom um it's very it's very isolating because the school districts don't understand what it is they and they don't know how to support you honestly child welfare professionals don't often understand reactive attachment disorder um and so you'll have investigations against you that are just like not even real but the child and like the um child protective services workers are like 23 and they don't they don't mm. know what it is and they don't understand why the behavior is the way that it is or why you are responding the way you're responding and they have different ideas a lot of times um, people want to be very behavioral in their approach to the child and so um, unfortunately even people who are in the cheap cheap seats but people who are in um, positions also are not educated and don't have the skills and the resources to be able to provide that support. So a lot of times what mm. I've seen personally is that people who are parenting children with reactive attachment disorder find themselves either very isolated from others or they find themselves really um, grouped together with those other parents just because they're the only ones who get to them. And it's like, you could go to this place where, oh my gosh, I can just be, I can like let go a little bit because somebody finally understands my child is going to behave this way and I don't have to be concerned. Um, I don't necessarily have this issue, but this, what's common with reactive attachment is that kids who have reactive attachment are very charming and very likable um, to the world around them. And so most people will say, you're, you're crazy. This child is so perfect. They never mm -hmm. cause problems. They are, they're just a delight. And it's like, well, yeah, that's because you're not seeing the real them. Um, they're, they're manipulating mm -hmm. because Sometimes they're, they're still parent shopping and they mm -hmm. think that maybe they're going to have to move to another home. Now, <clears throat> I say that I'm fortunate in that my son just is impulsive. And so he doesn't really care. Like, he will behave the same way at home for the most part as he does at school. And so people don't disagree with me that his behaviors are difficult. That's one thing that's very fortunate. And not all red is going to present all the same way all the time. Sometimes it's different. Yeah. I mean, because you have personalities too. I mean, you have just your human personality that is going to shine through differently. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um, but some of the ways that people can support is really just to show mm -hmm. up without judgment. Um, and I really mean like don't offer parenting advice. Hmm. Um really honestly just be willing to listen and be consistent in support for the family and the whole family by that I mean like 
over the course of the last like seven years, I really wish that people would have been more supportive of my biological daughter and being intentional with her. Um, at the same time, um, with my son, you know, especially as a single parent, like men have said, oh yeah, we're going to help out. And then they just like fail. They say, yeah, I'll mentor him. And then they just stop showing up. And it's just really frustrating um, because that just perpetuates his misunderstanding or his, his understanding that people are not reliable, that the world isn't a safe place and that people are going to just give up on him and that he's not lovable. Mm. And for me, you know, when I became a foster parent to him, I lost quite, I lost a big community. Um, And so I feel like that's kind of been Mm, the theme around our whole entire family is a lot of people um, have been there in the past and then um, they see how hard it is. Um, It's put a strain on, you know, my own personal family relationships. Um, Right. Right. Sometimes with my brothers or um, my sister or my parents even. Yeah. um, Just because they don't really know how to help and they don't know what to do. And so it ends up just, you know, they kind of distance them themselves um, because they don't know how to help and it's just frustrating so it just basically leaves you very isolated then you're kind of in the same boat with this child that you just feel like yep you're right like I don't feel like people are gonna show up and they're gonna care and um that's a lie right that you have to really fight against because people do care and they do want to help they just don't know how right yeah it seems it seems like like the number one thing if you are in community with someone who is parenting a child that has received this diagnosis or the parent that suspects they're struggling with this like just believe them even if that child is completely charming to you I think a number one way to support them would just be to be like man I'm sorry you're struggling with that but I believe you how can I help even you know what I mean um I think that is what I'm hearing and what I've seen from my other friends is the most disparaging part as a parent is to not be believed. They're so great. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so. Right. Or, oh, that's, that's just like normal. Like <laughs> what you're, what you're talking about, that's just, that's just normal child behavior. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, it's really not normal child behavior. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the other thing is a lot of times reactive attachment parents aren't truly honest about what they're experiencing in their home because they don't, I mean, they don't want to put their child on blast right. either. Um, they want to protect their children. So sometimes um, people will kind of explain it as like, if I was, well, I've even said this um, to like a police officer one time. If I was in the, if this was my spouse or if this was my boyfriend, I would leave. Right. Because this is an abusive mm-hmm. situation. But I'm his mom, so I can't leave. Mm. And that is a very, that's that's not just me. I mean, I'm in groups with other parents, and they say the mm-hmm. same thing. Like you cannot divorce your own child. Mm-hmm. And, um. Obviously, people do go back on their adoption, mm. you know, and which is something that I said I wasn't going to do, and I I won't do it. And right, um, and I have 
gone to really great lengths to find him the support that he's needed. And honestly, for my son, you know, you asked earlier, it's completely impossible. He's, he has really overcome quite a lot. Um, I did have to send him to residential because I just felt like he needed that therapeutic support that I couldn't provide. Um, something else that is maybe counterintuitive that I found that was really helpful. Um, and that, again, like child, child protective services would be like, that is not okay. Is allowing him to, to co-sleep with me. I feel like that has been very helpful for him and helped him to heal mm-hmm. because it allowed for like physical touch, which is very healing. Um, while he couldn't resist mm-hmm. it, you know, and not, not that it wasn't like he was the one who chose to sleep to co-sleep with me it wasn't like I definitely didn't like force him to and, sure. and sometimes I was like can I please just have my own bed like I do not <laughs> want to sleep with you um <laughs> but just to have that to have that time where he's relaxed mm-hmm. and you know I can like rub his back or I can even just like hold him close and he can receive that love well, well, he can't resist mm-hmm. it mentally mm-hmm. and physically. Right. Yeah, what's so funny is that his brain is probably craving those things because at a, a human level, we all, it's like scientifically proven, like we all need to be physically touched to be able to thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's so funny because it might have been like this subconscious response of like wanting to sleep with you because that was the easiest way for his brain to be able to get what it needed without surrendering like, you know, the behavioral things during the day of pushing you away. And so it's so funny the way sometimes our brain and our bodies react. And yeah, it's like, again, from the outside looking in, someone would be like, well, he's too old to still be sleeping and snuggling, you know, a mom at night. And it's like, no, but this is what his body and his brain needs. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's all very, it feels like backward parenting in a lot of ways, but it's also necessary and mm-hmm. it does like bring a little bit of hope like even hearing you say the strides that he's made just in the past few years um it's like no we can continue and keep trying and he's going to keep working and I'm going to keep loving and trying the best you can do and like there is hope and healing possible it's just so hard and so exhausting and so if you know a parent in your life that it has is parenting through this like reach out, believe them. Yeah. And then another thing too, I wanted to say was like, also like trusting you, um, as a parent that you are making the right choices. Like you said, like, don't give me parenting advice, please, because it's probably what I need to do is like completely like flipped. But also, um, I was talking to Caitlin about this at a separate time when we were talking about rad, but like, don't step in. Like we have, friends that are parenting toddlers with rad so when they fall down and get a boo-boo like no mom needs to be the one to help them with the boo-boo not the stranger because you're even though you think you're being helpful it's really not being super helpful because you're not the one they need to be building those Mm -hmm. super strong trust with Mm -hmm. like they want it they need their brain needs to be wired in a way that like I go to mom when Mm -hmm. I need help not just to the nearest stranger yeah and so which sounds counterintuitive for a friend because you're like well I just wanted to help because there was a boo-boo so it's like well you can help them up but then be like come on mom can take really good care of this you know like 
so it's yeah to be another voice reinforcing the consistency of mom and dad yeah yeah yes yeah consistent mom and dad yeah yeah so honestly it's almost like educating yourself too like I feel like it does need to get out there so thank you for coming on this podcast because I feel like more people need to hear about this Mm -hmm. so that more people can educate because just because your child or niece or nephew or grandchild doesn't struggle with rad doesn't mean that you don't Mm -hmm. need to know about it right yeah. You say? Well, and you might not know if they struggle with reactive attachment. So, um, right. But there's like a like forty percent of children who have been adopted out of foster care, or sorry, actually forty percent of children in foster care, um, are have reactive attachment. Hmm. So that's a big number. It is mm-hmm. a very big number. I don't know what the number is for domestic or international adoption. Um, but within foster care itself, it's, you know, 40%. And so the chances are if someone is adopting out of foster care, they probably are experiencing some attachment disorder things that um, really can use that support. And I'm glad you brought that up. Reinforcing that mom is the mm-hmm. safe one. Um, something else that's pretty common is that moms are considered the nurturing enemy. And so dads are very much the safe place um Mm. and they like dad but it's the mom that's the enemy because you know they've often seen like well dad is the one who it it doesn't you know I mean I guess they just don't necessarily feel like dad is the one who was supposed to protect them or whatever like it was it was the mom I I don't I can't even explain no I know but the mom is often the one who's targeted um, by that child, and I don't know if it's because maybe they perceive that the mom is weaker, um, mm-hmm. and or if it's just that because of the biological connection and loss of um, from from infancy that 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 is really that that is really the case. Um, it's a more it just feels like a more vulnerable relationship. Yeah, like like you're saying it's it's the it's the it's the one between a mom and a child that you want to trust the most, but so therefore it's the most vulnerable. Yeah. You know, you know, so that, that does, that does seem to make sense. Yes. You know, I think they could probably have similar feelings towards a dad, you know? Um, but if there's a, a mom and a dad in a home, I could see how the dad feels safer naturally. I, I understand what you're trying to say. And, you know, I think it's maybe even the same, just a child who doesn't, um, struggle with rad I can see how really my even with my daughter it's like okay dad will say yes that's dad the fun the one mom's one, the, the heavy yeah yeah <laughs> mom yeah mom takes care of everything so I'm not gonna ask her because, yeah <laughs> well yeah. and it's something else that they'll do that kids will do is triangulate and so they'll go and try to get the dad so he doesn't believe the mom Mm -hmm. and mom is saying like this is what happens when you're not watching and the dad's like you are crazy Mm -hmm. um I obviously haven't experienced this personally but friends that I have um they've seen this over and over again Mm -hmm. I have experienced this with um like therapists where he'll try to like pit a therapist against me um and it's frustrating when the therapist doesn't understand it or see that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cause I'm like, you yeah. should see this, but you're like, he is outsmarting you right now. Uh-huh. Right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. But um, that is just, it's just what they do. And it's how they maintain yeah. control because for so long they didn't feel control. 
And that's why there's a lot, there's a very high divorce rate mm. for mm. Um, adoptive families. And that's because of um, just trying to meet the needs of the child, but then also the triangulation that occurs yeah. between mm-hmm. the parents. So what encouragement yeah. would you give to a parent that is out there that maybe doesn't have the community that you found, um, but that is parenting um, a child that they know has rad or they've recently got that diagnosis and they are feeling that feeling that you had when you crumpled up that paper and like threw it across the room. It's like, what, what encouragement would you give them today? The best encouragement I think I can probably get is give is what was given to me. I, there was a long stretch of time where we were going through a really difficult patch and my son would want me to stay in his room while he was falling asleep. So it's in his room and listen to like the same praise song over and over again and just cry out to God, God, please heal him. God, please take away this, this difficulty in his life. Please make our relationship better. And there was one night where it just came over me that God was saying to me, it's not about what I'm doing in his life. It's about what I'm doing in your life. Mm. I've never seen anything so obvious displaying the gospel in the world other than adoption. It's just mm-hmm. such a perfect image of what the gospel looks like. And I guess the hope that I can give is that through this experience, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to refine you in a way that will bring hope and will bring joy the other thing is, is that there are, like, even if you don't know a single soul who's adopted or a single soul who has a child that's parents who have an attachment, there are support groups on online, like Facebook is a great place to find support groups for reactive attachment. And just to know that you are not crazy is so helpful. So going to, like, one of my favorite ones is, is attached families, um, and they are just filled with... Um, reactive attachment parents just to say like just like to read through and see oh I'm not the only one who experiences this Mm. I'm not the only one who like kind of hates being a mom today okay like that feels that feels validating and I feel like maybe I can I can go on just knowing that I'm not by myself in this experience Mm -hmm. um I think that those can be really really powerful and helpful tools um, and then also in that group, you'll find people who share like success, right. you know, and success is going to look different for your child. My child's probably not going to be the valedictorian of his high school class. He's, I mean, I hope he graduates. If he graduates, I will see that as successful, even though he is very, very right. brilliant, a very, very smart kid. School is not his strong suit. It's not his place where he thrives. Mm-hmm. So if he graduates, that will be success for us. Sometimes it's like you changed your clothes today. Like this is success for us. You know, we're like, we didn't have any outbursts today. You communicated with me today and you can celebrate those things with people and, um, and see that those things are worth celebrating as well. No, I love that. Celebrate the small wins. And I, and what I'm, what I'm taking in my head is that it's it's you're you're playing the long game here not the short game so find your community to keep giving you that boost mm-hmm. find those who are going through it like even if it's on facebook 
at the end of the night. Go and read those so that you know, I'm going to sleep knowing I'm not the only one. I am not crazy. All of those things. And what I'm experiencing is real because they are too. And even if you have a place to vent before you put your head down on the pillow, it's kind of having that community will will give you the boost for starting the next day. And um, yeah, I I thank you so much for sharing so openly and vulnerably. Um, I know this is probably a journey you never mm-hmm. wanted to be on um but it certainly is um it's really special to hear you say how god's refining you mm-hmm. through this journey even though you never would have cho- chosen this and that your son is a gift to you for many reasons and that being one of them so yeah. that that's really that's really cool so thank you so much for coming on and sharing yeah, absolutely. that absolutely absolutely and before we go we always like to ask a fun little Disney question to lighten the mood, to kind of get to know you a little better. And Mal is our Disney question giver, so I'm gonna I'm gonna toss it over to you, Mal. So now I'm interested in this answer because of you sharing a little bit of your your story as a child. But growing up, did you have a favorite Disney movie that you loved? What was your favorite Disney movie growing up? I feel like I grew up in like the heyday of Disney coming out with a lot of new Mm -hmm. movies um in you know the early 90s late 80s so like and like what was it Little Mermaid or was it Lion King or was it Aladdin there were so many good ones they're all so good yeah and I just am like hard to choose a favorite (laughs) yeah and for a long time I would have said Cinderella Beauty and the Beast oh all so good I just I don't I don't I don't know that I had a favorite. I think I just really, I really loved them all. All of them. <laughs> I remember, I will say this, because Little Mermaid is coming out again with the, you know, the live version. I think I was telling Gabe, actually, my son, I said, um, I actually cried at the end of Little Mermaid. The reason why was because she left her dad to go with Eric. And I was like I had my dad had to take me out of the theater because I was so upset oh my goodness <laughs> but that's so sweet that is so sweet yeah it is you're like why would you choose that man you barely know over your father right <laughs> that's actually really sweet yeah <laughs> and also a really great lesson for the mermaid like come on guys <laughs> yeah well Savannah thank you again for taking the time we're so grateful to have you on this podcast and a part of the Funding Love alumni family yes. <laughs> uh, for all of eternity. So thank you so much. And um, thank you listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Funding Love podcast. We'll see you all next week. listening to this episode of the Funding Love Podcast. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit, which means that people like you can make a lasting impact on the adoption community through your generous support. You can give online today at fundinglove.com backslash donate.